For your information, I did a little checking in my library, and I found that during these two interims that I've had and other times I have preached 192 sermons to this congregation. Hard to believe, even harder to endure probably. <laughs> Nevertheless, I'm glad to be back and glad to be here in this sacred place. You're to be commended, and I commend you today for what you're doing during these days together. I'm thankful for the leadership that God has provided you, both in the interim position and in the leadership here in your church. I'm also very proud of your response to this need in your church. You've done a great job, and I thank God for you and for what you're doing. Some years ago, Norman Vincent Peale wrote a bestseller on the power of positive thinking. It was the book that changed lives and it changed preaching. Preaching turned to meet the needs of particular people and people responded to that. I'm convinced that attitude is the secret of success. I've lived long enough to see a lot of things and to do a lot of things. But the attitude you have in what you're doing is the secret of your success. Nowhere is that any clearer than in the little book of Philippians, four chapters. But four chapters in which Paul energizes the people of God. There are many places we could take uh, text and use that text for the message. I have chosen the fourth chapter, and today I really want you to take your Bible and keep it open. If you don't have one, take a pew Bible, because I'm going to teach you the book of Philippians in the midst of a sermon. Now, I want to be honest with you. You know, I've been retired since 2000. That means I've been retired 23 years. And I've heard lots of sermons. I used to say I've never heard a sermon I didn't get something good out of, but I want you to know I've had some close calls. <laughs> so I'm more sympathetic with those of you in the pew than I've ever been in my life. My wife, who is my constant ear for what I'm doing and how I'm trying to do it, will notice me in a congregation get a bit nervous and I'll begin to cross my legs. And she understands that not much is going on. So she'll lean over to me and whisper, It'll be over in about 10 minutes. 
and I've come to that conclusion. So I'm, I'm getting to be more of a participant in the congregation than forever before. Let me read you these first verses of the last chapter of the book of Philippians. Therefore, my brothers, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, that is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. I plead with Euodia and I plead with Sintiki to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, local yoke fella, help these women who contended at my side in the cause of the gospel along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned and received or heard and seen in me, put into practice. And the God of peace be with you all. In the Presbyterian church, they would say this is the word of God. And the people would respond, thanks be to God. When I thought of this subject, I thought of a book I received some years ago at Christmas. I love books, probably have six of them by my chair in the den that I'm reading. I received a book titled, The Traveler's Gift. It was written by Andy Andrews, who has written many books, as you know. His daddy was the minister of music at my church in Eastern Hills in Montgomery, Alabama. So I saw him grow up, baptized him, witnessed his life. You talk about somebody with a great deal of influence over thousands of people, that's Andy Andrews. The title of the book he sent me was The Traveler's Gift. And it was about a, a fictional character, David Ponder, who looked like what we used to call Linux losers. Some of you can remember that. Nothing he ever did was successful. So he determined to look back down through the ages of history and find the secret of people who were successful. And in the book, as it was written, it had to do with joy. In my mind, 
It has to do with attitude. What is your attitude about life? What is your attitude about what is happening to you? It's a parable, really, which is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And I want you this morning with your Bibles open to think through what he's saying here and its influence on you particularly. You know, if you didn't know better, you would think Paul was on a cruise ship in the Mediterranean, out there on the outer deck, reading and writing. But the truth is, Paul was in jail. He was strapped to a Roman soldier. And he said in the book, everybody here knows that I'm in this jail because I'm a Christian. And then he goes on to write the book. I thought as I read Philippians 1.13, for everyone around here, including all the soldiers over at the barracks, knows that I'm in chains simply because I'm a Christian. No one of us sitting here listening knows what that means today. But there are people all over the world that are incarcerated because they're Christians. I want to notice something with you. He wrote this book according to what he said to warn the Philippians of their constant enemy. What did he label? Evil workers and hypocritical leaders. Think about that. What are the constant enemies of the church? Evil workers and people who are claiming to be what they're not. We need to think about that a lot. He wrote them to thank them. They were very generous in him, and whoever was preaching then was entirely dependent upon what the congregation was or what they did. He wrote them to encourage them in their Christian wall. If you didn't know better and you began to count 16 times in the book of Philippians, the word rejoice or joy is mentioned. That's the theme of the entire book. Now, looking at your Bible, in chapter 1, Paul opens the chapter with a prayer of joy. In chapter 2, Paul urges the believers to work together so that they might enrich their joy. In chapter 3, Paul reminds the believers to find their joy in the Lord. And in chapter 4, Paul gives the command, rejoice in the Lord. Interesting to me that that idea permeates the whole book. For example, we're to have joy in living in chapter 1. Look at verses 6 and 7, even when we don't get what we want. Or in verses 12 through 14, when there are difficult circumstances. Or in verses 21 through 26, when there are obvious conflicts. In chapter 2, there's joy in serving. 
In chapter 3, there's joy in sharing. In chapter 4, there's joy in trusting. So, we must, if we're going to have this kind of joy, pursue it. We know what it is, we look at it, but we ought to live our lives in the light of it. Our attitude must be conciliatory. This is one book Paul wrote that he never discussed doctrinal errors. Not a bit in here about errors in doctrine. It was errors in conduct that he was dealing. He did address some personal problems among two of the church members, two women, Yodi and Sintiki. He didn't say what they were, but notice this, as a good psychologist, he commended them before he said anything about their problem. It's interesting to me, as a student of counseling, how important that is. And two, he didn't take sides in the argument. Isn't that interesting? He didn't say that one of them or the other of them were responsible. He just said they had a problem. Then he turned to a yoke fellow. We don't know who that is. Some people say it was Lydia. Some people say it was Clement. But in that sentence, he mentioned the Lamb's Book of Life. That's the only place in the entire Bible that that concept is mentioned except Revelation. Very, very unique. I looked at that and I thought of enthusiasm. It comes from two Greek words. Ain theos, in God. You're to have enthusiasm. You ought to be equally excited about what you're doing. Now, we're living in the time when coaches are making major decisions about athletic events. You know it. You've been reading about it. Who's going to be the first quarterback chosen? Who's going to be the second? What's going to be the criteria they use? Two things. Ability, that's so important. And the second one is enthusiasm, excitement, ideas, creativity. Those are part and parcel. You can have a lot of ability, but if you don't have any enthusiasm, you're not going to be a good teammate. If you've got all enthusiasm and no ability, you're going to be a failure. That's very clear. And that's what he says here. One without the other won't work. And it won't work with us in life either. Now this is more than a plea for cheap optimism or what you might call this encouragement just to say something whether it's true or not. In fact, he said, you're to rejoice in every circumstance. Every circumstance. Hear me, every circumstance. I'll never forget my wife, first wife, Marjorie, brother, Chet, who was a surgeon. 
He didn't have to go to war. He was given a reprieve. But then they took the names of those that went to med school, put them in a pot, put them out, put some of them in the service. They put him in the army and sent him to Fort Campbell, Kentucky. He hated it. I've been in the military and loved it, so we talked along about it. And one day he called us. He was just, I mean, in an outrage. So much so, listen, you military people, that he never wore anything but greens all the time he was in the service. The commander of the base found out about it, and when he was out, offered to get out, he made him come in full dress uniform as a captain and report to him to get off the base. I loved every minute of it. Marjorie said, Chet, Paul said, you're supposed to rejoice wherever you are. The phone went completely dead. After a while, Chet said, Marjorie, Paul had never been to Fort Campbell. <laughs> I think about that and I think about his reaction and that's probably what some of you would say to me about this. And then look at verses six and seven of this chapter. They were to stop worrying. In other words, the way it's written in the verb form, there's a little privative that goes before that verb that says stop doing this. For example, Paul said that uh, to those disciples in the upper room uh, that they weren't to worry. In fact, he said, really, you're to stop worrying about my death. Things are going to be all right. Well, he says here, stop worrying because worry has a crippling effect on your entire countenance. Now, I don't know how it is with you, but I'm a little over 90. And I've had trouble sometimes sleeping. It wasn't my activity. It's just the fact of being older. By the way, when I go to Park Chittam, and I was talking to him about that, he said, Jerry, you gotta remember, you're 90 years old. I said, Park, I didn't come here to find out how old I was. <laughs> I came here to get an answer for a problem. Well, worry will tear up your life and ruin your sleep. So he says, stop worrying. And then he said something positive. Pray about everything. He used three different words for prayer. Every way you could think about it. That's what he said. Pray about everything. Some of you might have been where I've been. And in the midst of something you're worrying about that you don't really need to worry about, you know the two things you worry about most? Something that happened in the past or something that's going to happen in the future and you can't do one thing about either one of them. Not one positive thing. 
You can handle life where you are. And that's what he's saying here. Quit that. Stop that. If that's going through your mind at night, stop it. Start praying. I turn to things Jesus said. He said, my peace I leave with you, not as the world leaves, leave I with you. And those Old Testament prophets said, God said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Believe that. That's the gospel. That's in the book. I told somebody in a sermon one time, if you don't believe something in the Bible, you don't like it, just take your pen out and mark through it, wherever it is, whatever it's about. But I said, while you're doing that, go over there and read the last chapter of the book of Revelation, where it says, if you write anything out of this book, your name's going to be written out of the book of life. And friend, that is destructive. Now, I, I thought about that, and I, I thought about the promise, the peace of God would guard their minds and hearts. In other words, the peace of God will take the place of that anxiety in your life in the middle of night. No one preacher that I know of had more influence over American culture than Norman Vincent Peale. Today that preacher might be Schuler, could be Swindle, could be Max Licato. But those are the preachers preaching to real needs of real people. Now, every church suffers when its members fail to display positive thinking. I don't know about every church because I'm a Baptist preacher, but people in a Baptist church who are negative never die. They live forever. When we'd get together at a convention, preachers who'd been at the same church now, like those of us that were at seminary, and we'd say, is old Alvin still alive? And they'd say, yeah. He's still against everything that happened. I, I thought of a sermon I preached at the 50th anniversary of a church in Mississippi. They asked me to drive out after the morning service. They had dinner on the ground, and I was going to bring the message. On my way out there, I noticed the name of that church with a number one after it. When I got to the church where I was going, that was that church number two. So I'm a brave soul anyway, and while I was having dinner with this deacon, I said, tell me about church one and church two. He said, well, 
Preacher, we had a bad disagreement. I said, what was it about? He said, the Piana. I said, the Piana? He said, yeah, Piana. I said, well, what was it about? He said, well, some people wanted it on the right and some people wanted it on the left. And you were very much a part of that. He said, yeah. I said, well, tell me, what side did you want it on? He said, you know, it's a funny thing, preacher. I can't remember. <laughs> I thought to myself, what an insight. I also, in the First Baptist Church in Summit, called on a man, a young preacher to do that, to lead the closing prayer. Back in those days, you didn't ask anybody where they're going to pray. You just called on them. So I called on this man to pray. Well, he was an old bachelor who lived with his old maid sister about two blocks from the church. And the first thing he talked about in that sermon, which was his prayer, was the short skirts women were wearing. I remember he'd never been married, but he, he was tackling that subject with fervor. And then he talked about the hula hoop and the sexual gyrations people were making with that hula hoop. And I'm standing up there and said, Lord, what will be next? <laughs> and then he came to the television. That was what was wrong with the world. It was the television. I understand his people, uh, the holiness preacher that was really on that subject in Summit, his people gave him television and shut up that kind of talk, so we didn't have to pray about that anymore. But one of my deacons at the door said, Preacher, don't ever call on that man to pray again. There's just so much negativity we can take. And he said here, you're not to think on that mess. Now listen what he said. Think about things that are true, things that are noble, things that are right, things that are pure, things that are lovely, things that are admirable, things that were excellent, are praiseworthy. Why did he say that? Because what you think up here controls what you do. As a man thinks in his heart, the writer of Proverbs says, so is the truth. What do you think about? What's causing you grief? Then he says something. He uses four verbs to describe what the Philippians knew of his attitude. The first two he mentioned, what you've learned and received of me. Now that was his teaching. And the last two, what you've heard and seen, refer to his example. I wonder if the Lord were to evaluate us, how he would evaluate what we've seen and heard.
of what has been taught to us. I love L. Reed Polk, young preacher's daddy died. I had been in the church where he pastored. And when he preached that funeral, young Reed Polk said, Daddy, you've done it again. And he'd already told us, he said, you know, my daddy was a preacher, but he made his life being an encourager. And here's what Reed Jr. said, Daddy, you left the room, but you left the light on. In 1970, I went back to Shreveport, Louisiana for the funeral of my father. He was born in 1900. That meant that he, he died 70 years later. I can't tell you how many people at that service came up to me that I'd never met. You know what they say? You must be Drew Jr. There's so much of your father in you. When you think about that, think about your life. You know what a Christian is? A little Christ. Followers of Jesus are Jesuits. But you're called a Christian. That means that when people see you, they ought to see Christ living in your action. Enough said. I think so. Let's pray. Father, our attitude reveals so much about us. How I pray that our attitude would reflect in our lives our love for you, appreciation for you, and trust in you. Guide us to that end. In Christ's name, amen. We're going to sing a hymn of invitation. It's listed here in your bulletin. Have thine own way, Lord. Have thine own way. And that's the key. Let Jesus have his way in your life. That attitude will make all the difference. Would you stand together and sing with us that hymn?